Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 79 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, was the story of the woman caught in adultery originally in the Bible, or was it added later? Now, i got to start off the show with a brief correction. In the previous episode, which was originally labeled episode 78A, I said that this episode, both of which are going to be released uh, on today, which it will be the 18th, March 18th of 2020, I said that this was going to be episode 78B, but Lipson won't exactly let me do that. So sorry about that. This is actually episode 79, but in your mind, consider it part two of our earlier episode. So the discussion today might be a little long, so I decided to split the episode into the scripture part and the discussion part, and this is the discussion part. So let me start by saying happy shelter in place day my friends, which is one of the most uh, surreal things I've ever said. After 40-something years of living in Alabama, my family and I have moved out to sunny central California, the Salinas-Monterey area. We're about an hour and a half outside of San Francisco and maybe an hour slightly less from San Jose. And uh, our community, Salinas and Monterey County, we are shut down for the next 22 days because there is a shelter-in-place order. So this past Sunday, as I told you yesterday, we streamed our Sunday worship service. We're going to have to do that for the next three Sundays, and I know we're not the only church that is in that position. There's millions of us in California under a shelter-in-place order, and my friends, I think some of those are coming your way too. So buckle your seat belts, turn your eyes to Jesus and get ready because my gosh, these are strange, strange times. Sometimes, at least before the coronavirus hit, people ask me how it's going doing a daily podcast. And I can tell you that even though I've been podcasting since 2005, uh, this year is the first year I've ever undertaken a daily podcast. And I can tell you that each episode takes, I don't know, just a little under three hours from start to finish. That includes writing the episode, recording it, editing it in Audacity, and then uploading it to Auphonic to fix the audio, and then entering all of the pertinent information into a WordPress post and a Libsyn um, plugin. And it takes... You know, some longer episodes might take a little over three hours. Shorter episodes can be around two hours of time. Last night was one of the later nights for the show. One of my daughters wanted to watch a show with me. And uh, I'll honestly take just about any excuse I can to spend time with um, my kids. So we watched a show together. And that show began after midnight. Then I wrote a fairly long pastoral email to the congregation of the church I pastor about the current pandemic situation. And when I say uh, fairly long, I mean it was about, I don't know, six pages worth, so 1,800 words. We're in virtual lockdown mode, like I said, so uh, hopefully the people in my church had a little bit of extra time to read. One of the problems being in a church that is pastored by somebody who fancies themselves as a writer is that every now and then you get very long emails from time to time. And if you are a leader in the church that I pastor, then I am so sorry because in the last four days you got a 2,000 word email from me and an 1,800 word email from me. And honestly, I should repent in sackcloth and ashes for that. 
um, I suppose. But, you know, these are trying times we live in right now, filled with dangers like novel viruses, lack of toilet paper, and novel-length emails from pastors. Anyway, the point of what I was telling you earlier before I rambled on and on is that I did not even start writing the podcast last night until around 3 a.m. Fortunately, I had some great material from Pastor David Platt to use, so I didn't have to write a ton of original material myself. It was, however, one of the few times since I began this podcast in January that, honestly, I kind of just wanted to go to bed and not spend two hours or so on getting a podcast ready. However, When I got to the point of recording it, and I got to the part where I was just reading the scriptures into the microphone, that's when I noticed something that happens almost every time I do this podcast. The Word of God encouraged me. It gave me hope. It built me up. Like, it literally elevated my mood. And honestly, I wasn't, like, trying to be encouraged from the Word. I was just trying to finish the podcast so I could go to bed. But whatever I was doing didn't matter because the Word of God was moving on me. And the thing is, like I said... uh. Almost every time I do the show, I come away encouraged, not because I like recording and editing a podcast. The recording part and the editing part, honestly, that's a little bit tedious. But the reading the word part, that's powerful. It's supernatural. And honestly, it just builds up, builds me up in faith because, as you know, Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So I just wanted to share that with you as a benefit. You can get the same benefit without the two or three hours of writing, recording, and editing a podcast by simply reading the Word of God or even listening to the Word of God. If you haven't done so yet, allow me to encourage you to listen to the other half of today's episode. Like I said, that has all the scripture part into it. You need to listen to that too, or you'll miss that awesome encouragement. So in today's reading, we encounter the story of the woman caught in adultery, known to scholars as the pericope adulterae or adultery. Many scholars, including many evangelical ones, consider this passage to be a later addition to the New Testament. And in most modern Bibles, this part of John is set apart with special punctuation or footnotes or something like that to show doubt about the passage. So what's going on here? Was the story originally in John's gospel or is it a later edition? And I want to share with you some of a paper I wrote uh, about this topic because um, I went on a deep dive into this issue at one point. And this might be a little thick and a little scholarly, maybe, um, but I hope it'll be an interesting and an edifying conversation for those of you that have ever wondered about the reliability of the Bible. So, the Pericope Adulterae found in John 7:53 through 8:11 is surrounded by more controversy and conjecture than honestly any other New Testament passage with the possible exception of Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 the ending of Mark the authorship and placement of this pericope or story episode in the life of Jesus has been hotly debated at least since the 400s AD And there are still scholars, good scholars, lined up on opposite sides of the issues surrounding this passage. Now, attempting to extract meaning and application from this passage is almost meaningless without first wrestling with the genuineness of the text. 
in the mass of evidence for and against it. The issue is pretty simple to grasp. If this is a genuine and accurate happening in the life of Jesus, then it carries just as much weight as the rest of the New Testament. It's authoritative, but it's important. Conversely, if the passage is a later addition with no basis in fact, in other words, it never happened, then this passage is notable only for really its historical value and the question of how it became inserted into many manuscripts of the New Testament. Though it will be argued here that there's no 100% sure way to be certain of the historicity of this passage, the preponderance of the evidence I see points to it being a genuine happening in the life of Jesus, and as such, it does have application in the modern church, and it can inform how we live and interact with each other. So, let's summarize the passage. In John seven fifty three through 8, 2, this episode begins with a somewhat awkward transition from the previous narr- uh, narrative, and that's one of the reasons why scholars think that something's going on here. The stage is set here. Jesus has spent the night at the Mount of Olives, and dawn finds him mingling with the crowd near the temple courts. His very presence attacks a crowd, attracts a crowd, and notably, Jesus sits down to teach them. Now, in verse 3 through 6, as Jesus is teaching the people, the scribes and the Pharisees bring in a woman and stand her in front of the crowd. They explain to Jesus that the woman was caught in the act of committing adultery, and on the surface, they present her to Jesus for judgment. The question is, should the woman be stoned in accordance with the law of Moses? The text informs us that this is a question that is a trap for Jesus, basically a classic Catch 22. There's no clear way that Jesus can give a verdict here without opening himself up to some basis for accusation, either in the eyes of the Roman authorities or the people. Verses 6 through 9, perplexingly, Jesus doesn't answer their questions immediately. Indeed, he never gives them the verdict they are looking for. Instead, he leans over and he writes on the ground. The accusers persist in their questioning, and Jesus finally responds with his classic retort, challenging any one of the accusers without sin to be the one that casts the first stone. Though we don't know how much time passed after Jesus' challenge, one can almost be assured of an awkward silence punctuated by occasional stones hitting the soft earth as they fell from the hands of the accusers. Beginning with the eldest and probably the wisest among them, the scribes and Pharisees melt into the crowd. Now, what did Jesus write on the ground? And honestly, all we would be doing is guessing to get at that question. I have heard a lot of preachers make a big deal out of what Jesus wrote on the ground. But you know what? I don't think it's a big deal at all. The thing that Jesus says to them is what the text shows us is a big deal, not the fact that he was writing on the ground. My goodness, he could have just been doodling. But we don't know, and I think that means it wasn't important. So verses 10 and 11. Jesus and the accused woman are left at the center of attention, and he begins a dialogue with her, asking the obvious questions. Where did everybody go? Is no one left to condemn you? Upon her acknowledgement that they've all left, Jesus also refuses to condemn the woman, but warns her to leave behind her life of sin. 
So this episode of The Woman Caught in Adultery is, at the very least, a wonderful piece of literature. It's very moving. It's very dramatic. It's very well written. Jesus cleverly meets the challenge of the scribes and Pharisees without compromising and without falling into their trap either way. And the woman, caught in sin, is graciously given a second chance to repent. It's a powerful story, but is it genuine? Did it really happen? If it did really happen, why is there so much evidence against it being an original part of the Gospel of John? The majority of New Testament scholars are fairly adamant that the pericope adulterae is non-Johannan in origin. In other words, they don't think he wrote it. The ancient manuscript evidence is kind of stacked against this episode. Bruce Metzger, the Princeton scholar that uh, was one of our best New Testament scholars before he died, points out that all major early Greek manuscripts omit the pericope, including our oldest and most respected early manuscripts, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, P66, P66, uh, Papyrus 66 and Papyrus 75 also omit it. Though some Old Latin manuscripts do include the pericope, many omit it as well, and the early Syriac and Coptic manuscripts don't contain the passage either. In fact, Codex Bazae is the only major Greek manuscript prior to the 700s that this story actually appears in, and Codex Bazae is kind of known for having some interesting text things in there. In fact, Bruce Metzger says, no other manuscript has so many and such remarkable variations from what is usually taken to be the New Testament text. Codex Bezae's special characteristic is this free edition and occasional omission of words, sentences, and even incidences. So of all our old, old New Testament manuscripts, Codex Bezae, Codex Bezae is not normally considered one of the best. Further manuscript evidence against the Johannine nature of the pericope is the variety of places it's attached in some of the manuscripts that do contain it. In some old manuscripts of John, it appears after John 7.36, in some after John 7.44, and some as an addition at the end of John's Gospel. Some even have this episode after Luke 21.28, and some even after the ending of Luke, after Luke 24.53. Though the number of manuscripts that displace this episode is not overwhelming, the mere fact that it happens some and it has a varied appearance in even a few manuscripts does tend to cast a little bit of doubt on the concreteness of its location after John 7.52. The final bit of manuscript evidence is the unusually high number of textual variants found in the manuscripts that do contain the pericope. Gary Burge, a, a very solid New Testament scholar, points out that line per line, these 12 verses contain more textual variants across the manuscript tradition than almost any other passage of scripture. There's also much patristic evidence, in other words, going back to the early church fathers, especially in the East, stacked against the passage. This pericope is not mentioned by any Greek father until Euthymius Zygabenus in the 1100s and is not found in the writings of the early church fathers in the West either. Thus, it is admitted by Origen, Clement, Cyprian, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyril, and Chrysostom. 
even in the writings where it would seem to be an appropriate resource for them to use. While Professor Zane Hodges tries to make the case that the absence of the pericope in these church fathers constitutes an argument from silence and thus proves nothing, the fact of the matter is that this is more empirical evidence stacked against the pericope, and it adds weight to the argument that this was not originally in the Gospel of John. While the manuscript evidence would seem to be the greatest evidence against the pericope, there's also some suspicious grammatical and contextual features of the text, so says some. Statistical analysis of the text has claimed to show several features which, quote, prove its non-Johannan nature. Vern Poitras has examined the grammatical use of the conjunctions de, un, kai, and ascenditan in the Gospel of John and developed some general rules that John appears to follow. Upon examination of the adulterous pericope, it would appear that there are enough variations in its use of conjunctions compared with the rest of the Gospel of John to allow Poitras to conclude that this pericope is not, in fact, written by John. Further grammatical evidence focuses on the words that are used in the passage. Bryant and Krauss point out that approximately 9% or 15 of the words used in this pericope do not occur elsewhere in the Gospel of John, the highest percentage for a passage of this size in John. The Mount of Olives, the scribes, and the phrase early morning are not found anywhere else in the Gospel of John, but all are somewhat common in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In addition, only here in John is Jesus addressed as teacher. Now, while some of these unique words can be explained by the nature of the story, as well as the semi-technical judicial language employed, there is still a high frequency of unique words and constructs here compared with the rest of John. Finally, there is contextual evidence that seems to indicate this pericope is out of place. Dr. Borchert and many others believe that the text disrupts the flow of the Feast of Tabernacles narrative. Many point out its similarity in time and setting to Luke 21, 37-38, and as mentioned above, some manuscripts even place this passage right after verse 38 because it just seems to be a better fit there. It's also true that the flow of text from uh, John 7.52 to 8.12, if you pull out this episode, is smooth and uninterrupted. But, of course, that could be said for a lot of passages. Most scholars believe the evidence against the pericope adultery is overwhelming, but there is some positive evidence for the ancientness, ancientness of this event, if I can use the word ancientness and make it up, and even some evidence that would seem to indicate the text is Johannan and not at all out of place. The strongest evidence for the veracity and Johannan nature of the pericope comes from the manuscripts and church fathers of the West. Several old Latin manuscripts do in fact contain the pericope. Dr. Hodges argues valiantly that the absence of the passage in our earliest and most reliable manuscripts, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Papyrus 66 and 75, is due to those manuscripts being of a proto-Alexandrian origin and thus likely coming from the same original handwritten text or exemplar, one which had the passage 
intentionally excised. In other words, it was cut out because it was offensive. He proposes that the pericope was removed from some texts of the Bible very, very early, before the year 200, but that the passage was, before that, quite possibly, quite probably, in the original Gospel of John. Now, the patristic evidence for the pericope is surprisingly strong in the West. Several church fathers in the four, in the 300s and the 400s mention the text beginning with Passion of Barcelona and also including Ambrose, Ambrosiaster, Jerome, Augustine, and others. Jerome and Augustine in particular add much to the pro-Johannan side of the argument, themselves providing significant ancient evidence and speculation on the passage. Jerome includes the Pericope Adulteri in his Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, thus cementing its future acceptance among the Catholic Church. In his dialogue against the Pelagians, Jerome makes a very intriguing reference to this passage and says, In the Gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, is found the story of the adulterous woman who is accused before the Lord. Now that comment is very significant in considering the pericope adultery and would seem to stand out as the strongest pro-Johannan evidence available, at least to me. As Dr. Hodges points out, Jerome was very well-traveled and would have had a wide exposure to both Greek and Latin texts of the Bible, many of which were older than any that has survived to this day. Jerome's statement should carry a lot of weight with modern New Testament scholars, probably more weight than it appears to at this point, because this is the guy who was an incredible early church scholar. He lived in the 300s A.D., And he was one of the first major translators of the Bible into Latin. Indeed, his Latin Vulgate edition was extremely important. And this is a guy who really did the the early textual work and the fact that he says that this passage is in a lot of Greek and Latin manuscripts that he's familiar with, in other words, that are from the 300s and earlier, that's pretty significant. Augustine goes even further than Jerome does in his commentary on the passage, acknowledging the already existent controversy over the passage and offering a reason for its removal from some manuscripts. And Augustine says, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of truth faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who said sin no more had granted permission to sin. Now, while Augustine's hermeneutical approach to the passage contains a common mistake, Jesus did not actually specifically forgive the adulterous woman, his observation is very relevant and offers an intriguing possible explanation for the manuscript problems. And keep in mind, Augustine was writing this in the 400s AD, so a long time ago. And this would also explain some of the textual variances associated with this passage. Dr. Hodges further quotes Ambrose, who makes a similar suggestion to Augustine's that the passage was a stumbling block to men in the early church who might have viewed it 
as sort of, as they said, a license for adultery for their wives. And so some of these people might have just snip, snip, snipped that out of the Bible. The contextual argument against this pericope is perhaps the easiest to answer. While many commentators have pointed out the disruption of the Feast of Tabernacles narrative that this pericope seems to affect, Allison Trites convincingly argues the opposite. The entire passage fits into the overall theme of controversy in John chapters 1 through 12. Other contextual clues could be seen to indicate the proper placement of the passage. For one, it would seem that the story is pretty a pretty great illustration of John 3.17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This episode can also be seen in a literary sense as a response to the question posed in John 7.26. Here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? While much has been made of the grammatical analysis of this pericope, specifically focusing on what is considered non-Johannan grammar, there has been some grammatical work on the passage that offers different conclusions. Dr. Alan Johnson has used some of the existent grammatical statistical methods on other non-disputed passages of John and concluded that some of those would also be considered non-Johannan based on the same methodology used on the pericope adultery. In addition, he also points out several grammatical features in this passage that are, in fact, consistent with the rest of John, including the use of de, tuto, and legion. My own grammatical analysis of the passage has produced some interesting results, further casting doubt on the ability of statistical grammatical analysis to effectively determine canonicity and authorship questions. The phrase, uh, the phrase makedi amartin, which is Greek for no longer sin or stop sinning, only occurs here in this pericope and in John 5.14, where Jesus likewise instructs the paralytic to stop sinning. Ina akosin, a phrase that means that they might, is a phrase only found in this episode and one other place in the Bible, John 17.13. Kai Palin, and again in verse 8, is found six other times in John, but only once in Luke. Finally, the phrase Eistangen in the earth from verse 6 is found 23 times in the New Testament. Five are in John and 12 are in Revelation. So of the 23 times that phrase is used, 17 times it is Johannan in origin. That analysis might be used to impress upon some a level of certainty that John did write this passage, but in fact, in the final analysis, it doesn't add a whole lot to the argument one way or the other, except to possibly refute those who use statistical grammatical analysis to, quote, prove that this pericope is non-Johannan. A thorough survey of the evidence reveals one thing quite clearly. The authorship and position of the pericope adultery is not an easy issue to decide. It is perplexing and frustrating to see the certainty that is exhibited by many scholars on both sides of this issue. Bruce Metzger, Philip Comfort, Kurt Aylin, Raymond Brown, George Beasley Murray, Leon Morris, and many others all make absolute statements on the pericope and point to overwhelming evidence that it is either non-canonical or non-Johannan. 
Beasley Murray goes so far as to write, It is universally agreed by textual critics of the Greek New Testament this passage was not part of the fourth gospel in its original form. What an outrageous and misleading statement, I would say, although I like George Beasley Murray. On the other hand, there are a few scholars like Elmer Towns, some scholars in the King James only camp, which I tend to not agree with, and several Dallas Theological Seminary professors who are equally adamant, along with Dr. Zane Hodges, that this passage is certainly genuine and right where it belongs in the New Testament. The fact is that the best and most irrefutable evidence against the Johannine nature of the pericope adulterae is its lack of attestation in many of our earliest and best surviving manuscripts. When this manuscript evidence is considered in light of Jerome's quote above on all of the Greek and Old Latin manuscripts he saw that contained the pericope, and likely were older than most of the ones that we have now, including Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, we have a clear conundrum, one that cannot be fairly answered now without some new evidence coming to light. Thankfully, one thing is agreed upon by most New Testament scholars. This pericope is very, very old, and very likely to be an accurate event in the life of Jesus. Thus, Dr. Metzger writes that John 7.53-8.11 through 8.11 has all the earmarks of historical veracity. And Raymond Brown writes, There is nothing in the story itself or its language that would forbid us to think of it as an early story concerning Jesus. If this pericope is in fact a genuine event in the ministry of Jesus, how is it that it's absent in so many early biblical texts? To put the issue another way, uh, Philip W. Comfort, one of our best evangelical textual critics, offers a list of suspect passages in the Textus Receptus, which is what the King James Version is based on, including the Pericope Adulterae. He challenges those who would argue for the inclusion of these questionable passages to come up with good arguments as to why scribes in the early centuries would have purposely excised those passages. Gary Birch proposes an interesting, though fairly improvable suggestion that answers both questions. The Pericope Adulterae text was excised from some early manuscripts for theological reasons. Dr. Burge points to the unbiblical doctrine of penance as articulated by early church fathers like Tertullian, Clement, and Cyprian, who were early church fathers that did not mention this pericope. Sexual sins in the eyes of many of these early church fathers were very grave, and in some cases they considered sexual sins unforgivable. In light of that, it is conceivable that this passage was removed by some overjealous, zealous churchmen under the impression that it was too light on sin or in fear, as Augustine suggests, that it would give others license to sin without fear of reprisal. It is also a possibility that the text is a very real happening in the life of Jesus that was put into the Gospels, that never was put into the Gospels because of the fears listed above. Or, for another reason, as John says, if everything Jesus did was written down, the world couldn't contain the books. Now, We turn our attention back to the text itself, and from the perspective that it is a genuine happening and is placed in the appropriate place in the text, examining this passage in its literary context, 
we see that Jesus' ministry, previously marked by amazing miracles and healings at the time of the adulterous pericope, had become quite controversial. Jesus' teachings were very challenging, and he even lost some disciples because of them. In the events leading up to the encounter, Jesus' brothers urge him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, and he temporarily declined, only to come later and begin to interact with the people. As he teaches, many people believe in him and many don't, causing arguments and strife. The temple guards are sent to arrest Jesus, but they themselves become arrested by his words and fail to complete their job. The Pharisees and other religious leaders meet in anger, considering what to do and finding no solution. It's directly after this that the incident with the adulterous woman happens. The Old Testament in Deuteronomy 22 states, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. Leviticus 20 states similarly, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. These were the laws of Moses referred to in verse 5 of this passage. Curiously, there is no mention of the man that was with the woman. This has led many to conclude that the situation was a setup from the beginning. In other words, the woman was trapped. The scribes and Pharisees, therefore, were wanting Jesus to rule on a case that was flawed from the beginning. They were asking him to incompletely apply the law of Moses to this situation. This was, of course, merely another attempt by the religious leaders to put Jesus in a position where there's no good way out. A similar incident occurs in Matthew 22 and the other synoptic gospels. Jesus is asked whether it's right to pay Caesar taxes. If he answers yes, then the crowds would get angry with him. If he answers no, then he risks making enemies of the Roman leaders. Also, Jesus uses the same technique against the religious leaders in Matthew 21. When asked who gave him his authority, his request return question was John's baptism from heaven or not? And that could not be answered in such a way as to not cause the leaders who were asking him the question problems. In this particular instance, if Jesus were to, quote, rule that the woman should be stoned, he would run afoul of Roman laws against mob violence. And if he let the woman off the hook, then it would look like he was countermanding the law of Moses. The response of Jesus to this dilemma, certainly knowing the religious leaders' hearts and motives, is very interesting. He merely stoops down and writes into the ground. As I said earlier, much ink has been wasted trying to determine what exactly it was that Jesus wrote on the ground. George Beasley Murray offers a good list of suggestions. Was he writing out his decision in the case before verbally announcing it? Was he writing out a passage from Exodus that warns against supporting a wicked man as a malicious witness? Was he writing in the dust to remind the scribes of Jeremiah's words? Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I myself prefer Raymond Brown's proposal. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus was merely doodling, possibly to consider how to handle the situation wisely, possibly as he was praying and seeking the will of his father. The fact is that what Jesus wrote down has not been recorded, so it's not particularly important that we know. By suggesting that the one who is without sin 
cast the first stone, Jesus brilliantly diffuses the situation. It's very possible he could be referring to Deuteronomy 17, which prescribes that nobody should be put to death on the testimony of just one witness, and that the witness should be the first one to cast the stone. Is Jesus pointing to the possibility of the corruption of the witnesses here, understanding that the woman, though guilty, was caught in an elaborate setup and was thus invalidating the prosecution? case against her? Or is he articulating a more basic principle? If you are sinless, you can participate in her stoning. It's kind of a difficult question to answer. Stephen James argues somewhat convincingly that what Jesus means by without sin in this context is that their case must be presented without evil motives in accordance with the law of Moses. How many witnesses to the act were there? More than one? What about the man? The religious leaders knew their motives were not correct, and therefore they left the scene. It's also important to point out here that in diffusing the scene the way he did, Jesus did not abrogate or annul the law of Moses, nor did he completely uphold it. He chose a third option, an option that leaves open the question of whether those laws were still applicable in his mind. The incident ends with Jesus challenging the woman to go and leave her life of sin. Modern and ancient preachers and commentators alike have written or preached that Jesus actually forgave the woman. This is not the case. Jesus didn't explicitly forgive her. At least, he didn't according to what was written in the text. He simply chose not to condemn her and exhorted her to also stop sinning. Now, if we accept the hypothesis that this pericope is an accurate and genuine happening, then how does it apply today? Did such a passage abolish the death penalty? as many have argued. Does it usher in an age of more leniency on sin? What sort of standard is Jesus setting for those who would be in a position to judge or pronounce punishment over another person? Now, while it's very important to not draw doctrine out of a narrative passage, which is what this is, that doesn't explicitly indicate doctrinal things, this text can still go beyond being a beautiful story of the mercy and wisdom of Jesus and find application in our modern setting. The first application to consider is what this story says about the death penalty, if anything. As Stephen James points out, many, including John Howard Yoder, Dwight Erickson, Lewis Meads, G.H. Clark, Charles Milligan, and others have used this passage to argue for the abolishment of the death penalty. But a careful reading of the text will show that Jesus does not himself abolish the death penalty. Indeed, he doesn't even really address the issue. Thus, both opponents and proponents of capital punishment will honestly just need to look in other places to justify their beliefs. I believe the real modern application of this passage is found in Jesus' challenge to the religious leaders. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. That's John 8, verse 7. There seems to be a profound connection to this principle and the Plankai principle that Jesus articulates in Luke 6. In order to help, to help remove the speck from your brother's eye, you must first remove the plank from your own eye. The principle is this, that we should judge and purify ourselves, worrying less about the bad things we see in other people until our own issues are properly dealt with, 
then we will see clearly to help others out, not condemn them. The principle is not advocating merely minding your own business. It is advocating personal holiness that can lead to group holiness when we help and challenge each other in the right heart and attitude. The Pharisees and scribes were not at all interested in the principle behind the Mosaic laws they were urging Jesus to rule on, for instance, purge the evil from among you, They were just interested in accomplishing their own agenda. The church today cries out for those who would walk in holiness and near the heart of God to the point where we can clearly see enough to help our brothers out with the specks in their eyes, and then we can pass judgments rightly and without condemnation. An objective look at the Pericope adultery, its context, its grammar, and its manuscript history leads one to the conclusion that this passage has been rightly seen as controversial through the ages. There is not the kind of overwhelming evidence that is needed for dogmatic statements regarding the authorship and canonicity of John 7:53 through 8:11, either for or against. There is substantial evidence, however, to demonstrate that this text represents a genuine and accurate event in the life of Jesus, and as such, I believe it can and should inform the modern believer about the nature of Jesus and the importance of holiness and mercy in the realm of judgment. Well, I hope that wasn't too scholarly for us. I've long found this passage to be fascinating and the scholarly discussion around it to be equally fascinating. And I hope in that uh, discussion, I was able to at least boil it down to some some fairly clear and simple Um, in a simple and clear way that would make a lot of sense to those who might wonder, you know, why does my Bible seem to demonstrate that this passage that most everybody knows about Jesus wasn't in the original text? Well, I think it may have been in the original text. I wish I could prove it. I can't. But I am very persuaded by the testimony of Jerome and by the reasoning of Augustine as to why it might have been removed in some of the early church fathers and what they had to say about it. Well, what do you think? I'd love to hear from you in a comment at our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. That will do it for us. Join us here tomorrow, Lord willing, for another episode. May the Lord keep you safe. May he bless you. May he surround you with healing and his loving kindness. Godspeed to you.